Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And on the Thought Leader Podcast, we search the world for interesting and fascinating and sometimes remarkably smart guests who are going to challenge the way you think, they're going to inform you of things that you may not have thought about, and they're going to ignite your imagination as we discuss all sorts of topics. All right, without further ado... So very nice to talk with you, Fad. Now, how do you pronounce your name properly? <laughs> yeah, so it's an Arabic name, and and I always say in Arabic, our vowels are a bit different than it is in English. Fahed? We don't use vowel. It's actually it is Fahed, which is a, which is very Tishki yeah, very good. but yeah, can't you speak Arabic? <laughs> I wouldn't have taken Ma'hakid, that. Ma'hakid min zaman ana min ishrin sana. Oh, wow. I, <laughs> I'm very impressed, Ken. You've got me. You've taken me off guard here. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Do you speak awesome. a little bit? I do. I, I, I'm fully fluent. I'm fully fluent. Uh, so, awesome. I mean, uh, it was my, my mother tongue. I was born in Kuwait, uh, but we moved really? to Canada. Uh, yeah, we moved to Canada in 1998. So, uh, I always say uh, my accent only comes out on certain words. <laughs> you know, there's, there's certain words, the way we roll certain letters that you, you can just hear it. Is that, you know, fully native English and, and, and you know, native Arabic. But I'll, all my, I mean, it's been 22, 23 years, I, I say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm more Canadian I am now than I am, you know, Arab or Kuwaiti, you know, <laughs> which is what my father will always remind me. You know? <laughs> so, so, so does Kuwaiti have unique food within the Arab world? So my, I spent most of my time in the sort of Jordan, Palestine, yeah. Egypt area. And, and yeah. for me, Zatar was the, was my. <laughs> of course. And with Lebna, Zatar was up Lebna or with olive oil? What did you have it with? Uh, you know, both, anything. Both, yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> I, all of it. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Kuwait shares a lot of its dishes with Iraq. Very, very mixed. You know, if you look at the region's history, the way the way countries are currently divided up was only after World War One. So much of culture actually blends across the regions. Kuwait's known for its fish cuisine. We're right in the ocean, right? So it's is a lots of you know huge fish market. You you know that that's really a big part of the uh, uh, the cuisine in, in in Kuwait. Yeah. So I I I have to. I'm going to jump in really quickly here because. It was interesting what you were saying about Arabic adding letters. So it's Fahad, but it's spelled F-A-H-D. Um, I've never been accused of that being Australian. We just don't say letters. So <laughs> we awesome. just leave them off. <laughs> <laughs> so interesting that different cultures do things different ways. Sorry, yeah. I cut in on you, Ken. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I can't wait. What did you spend the years uh, in between, uh, I guess, Egypt, Syria, uh, you know, Jordan, all that? What, what were you uh, doing? So it was, it was many years ago, but way back then I worked with the Seeds of Peace organization. So mm -hmm. I worked in Palestine, Israel mm -hmm. and Jordan, Egypt, all mm -hmm. of those areas and talking about, you know, how, oh, peace was possible. And I still believe in it. <laughs> I still think there are some things that might, you know, lead in proper directions it's hard to watch the news um it really is though yeah. Yeah. yeah but i also spent yeah half a year in college learning arabic and and kind of in jerusalem 
playing music with a learning how to play um the oud and yeah. the oud i ended up buying was an iraqi oud because yeah. yeah, yeah. munir bashir is the the best oud maker in the world anyway yeah. there's my story i love it i love it there you go so you ended up so you came in 88 so kind of diving in just to your personal background so you're you're Canadian, hundred mm-hmm. percent. But I imagine yeah. you're also hundred percent Arab, hundred mm-hmm. percent Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. How does what is? Gosh, a whole lot has happened on the North American continent in the last uh, however many years. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the in one of my first visits to New York, New York City. What's the island outside of New York City where the immigration, uh, much of the immigrants? Ellis Island. Ellis Island. So we were on a boat, go to Ellis Island. We're walking through, we're seeing the whole museum and everything. And there's this, there's this huge poster picture. And there's this obviously written text underneath it to explain. And it says the generation, the in-between generation, the translators is what they called them. And it, and I'm reading it and, you know, they're talking about the in-between generation, the translators that that came over to Ellis Island, that came over from Europe to settle, to settle, you know, the America and and all the struggles with it. But here I am reading my own story. You know, very much, we were the in-between generation for my parents, in between the, the the translators, the in-between generation for a culture. I think immigrating today with the advent of the internet, TV, you might be more aware of the culture and the differences. But I remember the first time Halloween. You know, <laughs> you know, came about, and uh, we had no idea what Halloween was, right? I, I'm out there, I'm, I'm walking around the neighborhood, and all we see are these little kids knocking on people's doors wearing goblin costumes, and be like, "What on earth is this place? Like, who does this?" Right? My mom was like, "What devil worship is this?" Right? Like, you, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge clash, it's a huge difference. But I say we we sat in the cusp of, of two truths. The truths that we believe here, the truths that we believe there, and it actually made you extremely critical because you you were aware, very, very vividly aware of the truths your educational system was teaching you around the world and the truths that your culture, religion believed in and that there were differences. And you, you realize at a very early age the subjectiveness of truth. And I think that is a, is is when when I'm reading that poster in that moment, it hit me so hard. It's like we are we are not just translators of language because we translated a lot for our parents. You know, we would be in uh, parent teacher interviews, and uh, and and you know, teacher would talk to me. I'd translate to my to my mom. Right? You know, we're going through this, this process of, of of translation that um, you get away with a lot more, right? So, <laughs> but it also was translating values. Translating cultures, you know, making them mix, finding ways for them to work, finding ways to to reconcile different truths. And I think to the to this day, that unique insight has been one of my strongest insights in my ability to create teams, to lead, to educate, to teach. It's the ability to hold multiple perspectives at once. I love the idea of the translator. And I've found that sort of so Randy and I are both generalists and we both traveled a bunch. And that same concept of we live in a world where generalism and translator roles and connector roles will be more and more important. So I'm really curious to kind of almost dive in and say, so so what are you building? What are you hoping to be um, creating and growing and all of that? 
Yeah. Well, you know, over the last eight years, Kent, my team and I, I mean, started on my own, but today my team and I, we're building Unicorn Labs. It's a, it's a, it's a leadership development agency, but it works specifically around intergenerational leadership, intergenerational um, workplaces, and a lot with young leaders, you know, young CEOs, you know, you're, you're 26, you're 27, 28, and you just raised a series A round of $10 million and you've got a team of 50 people and, you know, you're super technical and you haven't learned to really lead a team. How do you lead people? How do you translate across cultures now that teams are more global? How do you, all of these kind of challenges in leadership that you're faced with at a young age. And so what we've been building over the last number of years are, you know, whether it's systems, whether it's knowledge, it's, it's, it's workshops, it's a way to help young leaders that are really trying to shape this world with the startups and the technology that they're building, but a way for them to better lead and lead from a very deep human empathy versus perhaps, you know, I would say the traditional uh, results over everything kind of Silicon Valley mentality that you might get at times, right? And how does that work? And how does that blend into this generation's want for creating better lives, more balanced lives with your workforce changing with, the, the, you know, all of that and blending those together. So we really have, have, have focused in on, on that. That journey around leadership development really came from an educational journey. I used to, we used to work on developing leadership programs for high school students, university students. We, you know, uh, we redesigned curriculum at the University of Ottawa to include social impact and leadership and all this stuff. And it kind of has accumulated over the years around this focal point of helping young leaders in tech startups really transform themselves to be able to transform their teams. So Fahad, it sounds like you've done a lot of work in creating and educating. What sort of practical experience have you had in the leadership realm? Yeah. That's a great one, Randy. You know, it is one that I would I would say a few different hats. One of the 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 most life changing leadership roles I held was at a very young age, seventeen. At seventeen, I was in high school. Friend of mine, we grew up in 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 Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. Within Ottawa, we were in this community called Lower Town. It's the highest density of low income housing, new government housing for immigrants, and 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 so on and so forth. And uh, here we are in high school, and a friend of mine turns to me and says, Fahad, I want to see if we can do any youth programming for kids in our community. I'm like, we're in high school. We're 17. What do you mean? We can't do anything. What are we going to do? Who's going to trust us with our kids? (laughs) And we went down this path. We went down this path of trying to explore, could we develop any sort of programming for the kids? Could we raise some money? Could we do it? And um, we started when I was 17 that that year, having absolutely no idea. We made our first poster on Microsoft Paint. I'm sure you both can appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> and we printed it in black and white, knocked around the neighborhood and said, hey, uh, we're, we're going to try and do these youth activities. And we focused on March break because we were like during March break, a lot of kids don't have much to do. Parents are still working. Can we do something? And we're off because we were high school students. We started that camp with three, four, five volunteers and we ran it all the way throughout university. We raised over $40,000, we helped over 250 families. And it was, I say my version of a, you know, people say, what was your first business? I say my first business was helping kids. My first social enterprise, my first kind of creating something out of nothing was this concept of, can we create a camp? Can we create a youth program that in an area that didn't exist? Can we identify a need and can we work on it? That really is what led to so much more 
uh, during our time at university, that same group of friends that we got together, we started working with different nonprofits and creating fundraisers. So we put together a team. We raised about $1.2 million just while we were in university for local charities, Boys and Girls Club, Children's Wish Foundation, Youth Ottawa. And at the end of my time at university, a friend of mine said, fine, I think you should run for the student union. I said, ah, I'm just trying to get through university. I'm trying to finish. There's no way I'm going to do this. He said, I think it'd be a great opportunity to put some of the skills at hand. Student unions in Canada are diff- a bit different than the U.S. They're very much their own entity, their own nonprofit. They're registered. They're not a society under the university. And it, it peaked as an opportunity to really try out the leadership skills that I had been learning and developing our own stuff. And I ran, and it was extremely competitive at our university. We have 50% voter turnout of 25,000 students. So it's uh, it's like a little city you know, race, uh, <laughs> election race. And I served as two years president where it was an $8 million budget with 150 staff. And so at the age of 21, Randy, I would say I got thrown into dealing with two labor unions, uh, trying to manage four businesses, 12 different services that we uh, provided outside of that, and, and trying to figure out how to lead. And I think many of us make all the possible mistakes. So actually, most of the stories I share about all the mistakes I made during my time at the student union. Um, and, and that really shaped a lot of what I did after. What I did after ended up, we, we had our own startup for two and a half years. Unfortunately, it failed, didn't work out too well. I led a business unit in another startup. So a few different leadership experiences in, in, in that realm, a lot around young leadership and uh, working uh, uh, as a trainer for high school students, developing programs for leadership for high school and university, and then ultimately teaching at the University of Ottawa also. And so my roles kind of shaped and, and changed from kind of leading to educator, I'd say quickly. However, the, the early, early years that were kind of th- throw me in the fire and kind of throw me in the deep end and, and swim and learn to swim uh, really shaped a lot of the learnings that, that, that I have today. So I have, a, I have a question that's going to take a little bit of explanation, so bear with me. Please. When I was 26, I was charged with running Matchbox Toys. When I was 27, I was charged with running as general manager of Plymouth Airport. I didn't have people around me at the time teaching leadership skills. I'd already created my leadership skills long before then. Today, we have 26, 27-year-olds coming out running businesses who have no idea how to do it, hence an opportunity for you. So my question is around the education system and what has failed these people so they're coming out without these skills. Yeah. Uh, you know, Randy, this, this hits uh, directly the point that we're currently working on a five-year project with the University of Ottawa around this exact point. Where have we failed? Where have we not been able to help these students that are coming out of uh, their masters, their, their, their undergrad, their masters, and, and unable to have the necessary leadership skills. I think part of it comes to our obsession of specialization. More and more universities have more and more specialized programs. Before, you got a liberal arts degree, yeah, you got a general bachelor's, you got a science bachelor's. They were grouped more generalists. And part of being a generalist, I think, as Kent said early on here, is that you become a connector, you understand seeing different perspectives, and that's what allows you to lead at many times, is that your ability to hold multiple perspectives. But as they, as we've done more and more specialization in education, we have people coming out with an undergrad with a hyper-specialized skill set in policy of international global affairs in this thing, right? Or, or you know, computer science, software within this specialization. 
And then they look for jobs very specific to that. And so what we're getting is more and more experts, more and more specialists, but they lack the necessary skill on human dynamics. The additional piece to that, Randy, is I would say technology has been phenomenal in our ability to build business, uh, but it's also taken away from our ability to learn how to effectively manage human relationships. You know, we're easy to send a Slack message to say, hey, you messed up. You shouldn't have done this. I don't like this report and I'm upset at you. But we are are, are uncomfortable having the difficult conversation with our employee, with our team member. Right. And so that's part of the generational gap that we're seeing, too, is a comfort level of difficult conversations that are in person that require a high, deep level of empathy, emotional intelligence, right, social awareness, self-awareness than it is to send a text message. I'm interested in your in the name of your business. Unicorn is a business term that we all, well, we understand. Maybe our listeners don't understand what a unicorn is. Perhaps you'd like to explain that and how you feel yeah. about calling yourself a unicorn leader. You know, it's a, it's, it's a great question, Randy. I mean, yes, a unicorn startup is a startup that becomes worth a billion dollars or more valuation or over a billion dollars. And, you know, we know that a lot of the startups that we work with, that's their aim. They want to build a billion dollar valuation business. And our number one kind of hypothesis, our number one thesis here that we that we work on, that we build on is that you want to build a billion dollar business. You want to build a billion dollar you know, startup. You have to build billion dollar people. If you want a unicorn company, you have to have unicorn people. You have to have a team, a high-performing team. You have to have high-performing leaders that can create that for you. And so, you know, no, we haven't built it. I haven't built a unicorn startup, but very, you know, by all means. However, have we helped train people that truly transform their business and transform uh, the results that they've gotten? Yes. And so, you know, our focus really is you want to build a unicorn business. Let us help build your unicorn people. So um, I have built a unicorn business. I love everything I'm hearing, but when I look at unicorns today, I see leaders who are not so interested in developing leaders, but are far more interested in in developing their company. So Elon Musk doesn't develop leaders. He buys leaders to develop his team. So I'm just sort of trying to piece this together so I can understand exactly what you're doing. Yeah, 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 no, Randy. This is all. I love all of this. I, but, but this is exactly the discussion I would want to be having. The leaders that we look to today, that are kind of these grandiose leaders that we look up to because of what they've accomplished, that have built unicorn companies, fall under the myth of leadership. The grandiose, charismatic leader that we want to give credit to. They are the Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs, the Jeff Bezos. But let's not forget that Steve Jobs lost his company for being an asshole. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk was removed from X.com, PayPal, because he was a shit leader. Pardon my language. Let's not forget their failures in leadership. Jeff Bezos, there is chronicles of how much he's had to have executive coaches help him through his, his inability to lead from a human perspective. They are geniuses nonetheless. It's not to take away from their ability to create innovation. However, to... Give them the title of leadership in the sense of human development would be a mistake. And so how do we reconcile this? Because at the end of the day, they've still built these billion-dollar companies. So I can't be going around saying they're, they're bad because they've still gotten the success. So I, well, I want that success. Can I just do what they want? 
Well, we forget who we have around them. You know, we don't talk a lot about Elon Musk's brother that helps do a lot of people management. He is a, right, a really, really intelligent people manager. The people around them. We don't talk about Mark Zuckerberg's right hand that helps do the people side of things, right? I think what we can't forget is that, as you've noted, effective leaders, the most effective leaders in how we've positioned at Unicorn Labs, create high-performing teams, right? So in your manner, Randy, you said, okay, well, they buy they're buying the best leaders. So they're not developing, then they're buying the best leaders. They're still obsessed about that same question. How do I create a high-performing team? And so some people can buy leaders. Great. If you've got the billions to buy the leaders, by all means, be the New York Yankees and buy the best talent. We've seen it work in baseball over and over again. However, majority of startups we're working with, you don't have billions. So what's the next best option? And it actually is to grow leaders. We see it in the data over and over again. This is where I become a little bit of an academic here for you, Randy, is that um, when we bring CEOs from outside of the company, it is hands down over and over again shows a higher chance of failure than if you raise a CEO up through the company, right? Because they understand the culture. They understand the people they understand it. And so, you know, here's here's the one piece that, that, that came out of Gallup's research that I think, Randy, you'll find extremely fascinating. Employee engagement, which we all obsess about team performance, 70% variance of employee engagement comes down to the manager. 70%. And it's about like 12 or 13% that comes down to affinity of the CEO. We obsess over the leaders, the CEOs, because we have this grandiose myth about leadership, that it's the charismatic leader that's going to take us into war and help. But really, I stay in a job because I like my manager, because my manager helps me develop, because my manager helps me grow, because I have a relationship with my team, because I have a strong team. That's the kind of leadership we're looking for. And, and, and that's where we come in, actually, a lot of times when we work with companies or any, I say, you know what, I don't really want to work with your C-suite just yet. Give me your managers. Give me your 10, 15, 20 managers, and let me show you what we can do for team performance. And then we'll work with the C-suite, because by then, once you see the results we're seeing at management at the managers, you'll you'll be more open to a younger guy giving you leadership some leadership principles. Because, you know, sometimes there is that, right? You know, that we've we we have a little bit, oh, you know, if I you're a bit younger, you know, you don't have a billion dollar company, should I well, let me work with the ones you do think I can work with, see the results, and then we'll work with you after if if we get those results and we have seen those results right and 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 it's because it's because it's there's such a there is such a gap and Randy you identify there is such a gap in the people skill i'm not i'm not teaching anything magical most people can identify the skills that we're going to try and teach but the emotional labor it takes to develop a good team versus just knowing the concepts of what make a good team is the gap that we try and fill so i love the charisma you show. So in, in terms of, yeah, when, when you get warmed up, there's a great amount of, of passion and, and insight that you're bringing to the table. I think what, what I find most interesting at the tail end there was really fascinating to me, kind of looking from the outside. You are a master of spin. Uh, I'm a master of spin too. But in terms of like, hey, there's a weakness. I'm going to show my own weakness and say, listen, yeah, I haven't, I haven't worked with the unicorns, but you know what? Down with the man, right? Like, do you, charismatic leader? Great, cool. Let me add him, right? So I love, I love that. I love the the spice of that. It's like the sumac in the in the zatar. It's the unexpected ingredient, right? It's <laughs> like what? I thought that was poisonous. No, no, it's 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 it's, it's good stuff. So I love, I love what you're doing. I love the way you talk about it. And to kind of close us out, we keep these interviews short. What's the, 
what's your big vision for what you want to do? Not for kind of what the world will do and hell in a handbasket and all that stuff, but what, what would you like to build and do from your vantage point here? Cause that, you know, from the charisma I'm seeing from you, how do you become that sort of unicorn leader? Yeah, it's great. That's a great question, Kent. You know, I, I think training, learning and development are channels for a larger vision. People development is a, at times education is seen as a goal in itself. And I don't think that's necessarily the case where we're just learning and educating people and helping. We, we want to reshape the way people think about each other. I think fundamentally one of the biggest flaws in our current industry and our current economic prosperity in our current capitalist models is that the rational buyer is self-interested. And what we challenge from a leadership level with managers is whether they believe in the inherent goodness of their people. Whether you believe that biologically and inherently every single person on your team actually is a good person that wants to provide and wants to build community and wants to uh, help progress the human race, help progress civilization. The majority of problems we have in leadership and in managers comes down to the fact that we think people just below the surface are going to try and take advantage. That if you give them a chance and you develop a system that's not perfectly honed in or perfectly policed, that there are people who will uh, take advantage of it and, and, and actually, you know, make a muck out of it. I think if we can shift people's perspective on each other and believe in the inherent goodness of people, if we can do away with veneer theory, if we can do away with the ideas of Lord of the Flies where we will fall into chaos when we are on our own, but really see that humans actually come together to solve problems, I think that that, that will replace the old myth and actually build a world, a city, a company, a community that does better, a community that lives better. You know, we tied this concept here to the concept of psychological safety that has talked a ton now in organizations, right? There's a ton of work on the importance of psychological safety and how leaders create that. I think that comes from a genuine belief of whether you think humans are inherently good or if just below the surface when chaos hits, the humans will take advantage of each other. And I believe that there's evidence in our in our psychology, our evidence in biology that points to humans are inherently good, yet we tell the myth and the story that they're not. And that, Kent, is my ultimate vision, is if my impact on the world is to help shift perspective of what we see each other, how we work with each other, because at the end of the day, what are companies, what are organizations? They're just a collection of people working towards a specific goal to better human society, right? Thank you for that, Fahad. I think that's a really strong point on which to, to bring the, this interview to a close. Where can people find you and, and who are you looking for to connect with you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can find us on our website, unicornlabs.ca. You can find me on all the social media, LinkedIn, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Fahad Al-Hatab, uh, uh, my full name. You'll, you can search it. It's a fairly unique name. So if you search it on Google, you'll also, you'll also find all her stuff. You know, Randy, we're really we're looking to connect with VPs of talent who are looking to transform their people. 
We're looking to connect with managers who want to learn a new way of leadership uh, that that at, at its core believes in the goodness of people uh, versus a command and control or a in, needing to incentivize. You know, it's funny. I'll, I'll leave it with this. Randy, a lot of corporate leaders come to me sometimes. They're like, oh, we're looking for a bit of a motivational speaker. I said, if you think motivation is your problem, we have other problems to deal with. You know, motivation is a symptom. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a problem, right? We, we there are engagement. There are le- like the systems of leadership that we develop. So, VPs of talent, uh, chief human resource officers, we work with. You know, we work with companies typically 500 employees and under is typically where we're at. A size where they're still reshaping their culture. They're still trying to gather their identity and rebuild their identity, constantly iterating it. So that's that's you know our focus. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. This has been a a fabulous interview and thank you for being so open and great discussion. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Kent, for for having me on and great questions. I really appreciate those. This has been such a wonderful conversation today. It was surprising, it was intriguing, it was interesting. And this is just an example of the types of guests that we have on the Thought Leader podcast. And we would love you to subscribe so you get to hear the next issue. Or you can visit our our website. Our website is thoughtpartnergroup.com. And at the top, you'll see a little button that says, take the assessment. In one minute, you can take the assessment and get a response from us. We'll read everyone. All right. Take care. Have a good life. And we'll see you on the next one.